Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. My guest today is the Ballymena writer Jan Carson, whose latest novel, The Firestarters, has recently been published. Jan's first book, Malcolm Orange Disappears, came out in 2014 to critical acclaim, and she followed that up with a short story collection, Children's Children, in 2016, and a flash fiction anthology called Postcard Stories the following year. Her work has appeared in journals on the BBC, in the Irish Times, and in 2016 she won the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Competition and was shortlisted for the Sean O'Fuelan Short Story Prize. Jan is also a committed community arts facilitator based in Belfast, specialising in running arts projects and events with older people, especially those living with dementia. On today's show, we talk about that community work and how important it is to her. We also talk about the complexities of identity in Northern Ireland and the tragedy that is the current political state there. But we began with her brilliant new novel, The Magical, The Firestarters. Jan, Belfast is on fire in your book, like literally and in every way. And it's really funny, when I was reading it, there was a huge fire in Belfast. And not too long ago, there was the big fire in in Pennies that burned Pennies down. So it's kind of interesting. The other thing that I thought was interesting reading your book, The Firestarters, was that your man from The Prodigy died as well during it. So it's there's kind of a lot of stuff, you know, this Irish imitating life or sort of coinciding. Did you sense that as you were... Um, in a worrying sort of way, yes. Whenever the Primark building went on fire, um, I had to very quickly flick through the book and check that it wasn't one of the historic buildings that I'd burnt down. <laughs> you don't want to get accused of something. Um, I do think, yes. I mean, I, I've tried to write something that's really contemporary to Northern Ireland. And so it does mean that although it's a little dystopic in places, it doesn't feel too far removed from something that could happen. So um, in the summertime, there were a number of bonfires which got pulled down in East Belfast because of height restrictions. And, um, you know, my agent was in touch going, this is in the news, but I think it also happens on page 23 of your book. (laughs) So I I think that's what it is to write something that's quite current and contemporary. You run the risk of sort of venturing into the prophetic a little bit. So I do hope it doesn't inspire anybody into acts of arson. Yes, well, it won't be your fault if, if if they do. These things are happening, as you say, and yeah. it's kind of in the in the ether. But I was interested to hear you talk about um, giving a talk in America, I think it was one time, and talking about these bonfires. So I've spent a bit of time in Belfast. I know exactly they are yeah. unbelievably intimidating looking and they do look so dangerous and you kind of marvel at how they were constructed. And you were explaining this to an American audience and to them it just... 
seemed quite bizarre and yeah. unreal, you know. And I think it was really interesting. I'm mostly by Benton and Magic Realist and I had just read a slightly bizarre Magic Realist story and was explaining bonfires to them and a, a lady from the audience said, oh, and these bonfires that you speak of, they must be Magic Realism too. And, and I had to pull up some photos and show, no, these are very much real in, in Belfast. And I think it, it really gets to the crux of where the idea for the book came from, which was... You know, I was walking around um, during the bonfire season and just really struck by, as a magic realist, how thin the line between realism and the absurd or extra real or whatever you want to call it, some of the symbols of loyalist culture are. So these enormous bonfires, the huge lambeg drums that they beat, King Billy on his white horse, they're strange, bizarre symbols, which for me as a magic realist, they're really intoxicating. Um, and I began to think, you know, could I blur the line between reality here and maybe tip over into something a bit more supernatural as well? Now, for people, you've mentioned magic realism a few times there and called yourself a magic realist, which I think is a great thing to call yourself. I know. I'm a magic realist. I love it. Um, some people mightn't be as familiar with that genre as, as other. They might be more used to reading yep. novels that are straightforward. So can you explain to us what it means and why it is that you gravitated towards that in your writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, magic realism is a very nebulous term. A lot of people will have different boundaries for what makes magic realism. Um, the big magic realist folks will be familiar with are Isabella Landai, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Salman Rushdie, Gunter Grass, who's the Ten Drums, one of my favourites. Mm. Um, and a lot of those guys, they use their magic realism to talk about political situations and um, quite often dictatorships and regimes and things that were very difficult to come out and critique full on. You know, you could have ended up in prison for some of the things that they wanted to say. Mm. And yet allegory and metaphor exist it as something that almost put a buffer between the point they wanted to get across and their way of delivering it. Mm. Um, and for me, Northern Ireland just seems ripe for that <laughs> kind of writing, not just because there's political things that need to be said, but also because we're steeped in this tradition of it's a hothouse of religion and myth and legend that we all grew up in, and incredible storytellers. So it seems quite obvious to me that you would want to blur the lines between magic and realism. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range brings a variety of signature flavours, introducing a smoother, velvety taste with a premium chocolate experience, and all with our Green and Black's promise of the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. And you had quite a religious upbringing, is that fair to say? Did that inform that kind of sense of, um, because I've, I've seen you talking about the King James Bible and what an yeah. incredible text that is, full yeah. of all those metaphors and everything like that. So would that have brought you that way too? Absolutely. I mean, my first memories of being in church were a two-year-long sermon series on the book of Revelation when I was about two seven. Two years Yeah, long. every Sunday for two years. And it was terrifying in places, but it also instilled in me this kind of fascination with the bizarre and the you know the prophetic and um I think your your primary storytelling language that you learn really impacts you as a writer. So it's what you default to um, most obviously when you sit down to write. And for me it was the language of the King James, it was those Old Testament, the revelatory stories and it was also old people. Like I always come back to John Montague's like dolmens around my childhood, the old people. They were, and they told stories in these circuitous 
beautiful, rambling, sometimes tragic, sometimes funny ways. That's how I learned to tell a story. And when you say there were these this dolmens, but did you were you surrounded by more than usual older people, like or was it grandparents or who was it that um, particularly influenced you? I think when you grow up in the church, like the church I grew up in, we we show respect to older people and they quite often take the floor. So um, <sighs> there would be a lot of storytelling went on and. People are familiar with that quite often in a Catholic tradition, but it happens too in a Protestant tradition. So something like a wedding, people get up and tell these fantastic stories and the really? speeches. Yeah, they often try and convert you as well while they're oh, telling okay. the story. Right. Um, the same with funerals. Like I grew up with dry funerals, no no um, alcohol at the yeah. wake, but enormous amounts of stories about the, the people we were celebrating. Yeah. So that becomes something that Sorry, I'm just trying to get my head around a dry funeral. I can't even conceive of the notion. Just a lot of tray bakes. <laughs> sandwiches. <laughs> I love it. And tea, an enormous amount of I've tea. I've been to a dry wedding. Um, yeah. of one relation of my uh, boyfriend's, he, she uh, would be very much of that persuasion. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing just to have my waddy at a, at a wedding. Oh, no, schlur is what you well, go for. Well, schlur is what, yeah, we have that in our house at Christmas. Yeah. It's, it's the thing that we Do you know, for. there was a run on schlur outside Ballymena this year because they were doing a special offer for a pound a bottle. And apparently they sold 20,000 bottles of schlur in a week, which is double the population of the entire village. <laughs> So I always think that particular fact just it's a great fact. <laughs> everything you need to know about Ballymena right there. Oh, it is. Um Actually, I'm just thinking, he's just popped into my head, Jerry Anderson was very good for the old magic realism about Northern Ireland in yeah. a way that he could just really make such, he was just so funny about Northern Ireland in such an affectionate way. I always, when I used to live up there, I'd listen to him yeah. and he, he'd have all these stories and kind of, he'd make it this funny kind of yeah. thing. And, and there's a lot of humour in your book as well, even though someone going around setting these fires and we don't know who it is um, and it's it's pretty scary and it's, so it's grim and it's bleak, but there is that kind of Belfast wit and warmth through the book too. Absolutely and there's a lot of people in it. I quite easily distract it by characters who pop in and out and I think that's where some of the, the wit and the warmth comes in. There's some older people who appear and some subsidiary characters, the unfortunate children and, yeah. and they bring these little moments of maybe sunshine in the midst of the darker parts. I think for people who um, maybe aren't used to magic realism and I'd probably be one of them myself and, and sort of maybe a bit more literal and even though obviously with novels you want to go be taken to another world, for some people it can be a bit too far if there's something yeah. in it that doesn't ring true. But I think you've managed very well to allow us to, uh, because I think it's so grounded in a real story and grounded yeah. in real people. There's a there's a man, Jonathan, who I really, I love that character. Um, and he has this baby who he's afraid of. And we sort of learn that this baby's as supernatural powers. Yeah. And, you know, in the hands of someone else, I think I could have been a bit, oh, I don't know, I don't know about this supernaturally baby. But you, you, you have a very good skill of making it still believable. And I think that is a real gift because it's hard to do. Well, I guess I always say the good magic realists were realists before they brought any magic into it. And you have to learn how to write people really, really well before mm. you can make your readers believe when the weird stuff starts to happen. So I, I guess I, I ground it myself a lot in observing the neighbourhood that I live in. I spent a lot of time walking and being nosy. <laughs> but I also, I read a lot of realism and probably my first bent would be towards big realist writers who are writing about the dark, gritty, difficult mm. things. 
Do you have a big affection for Belfast? Um, as I said, it's kind of grim and bleak, but it, I, that kind of comes through for me that you're you're really writing about the city in a very uh, real, but kind of, I do think it's affectionate way. Does oh, it feel absolutely. like that for you? Absolutely. Um, it was a hard one love affair for me. <laughs> so I, I left and moved to the States when I was 25 and came back when I was 30 simply because my visa ran out and I had no more notion of being back in Belfast. And what did you do over there? Um, I was working in a church as an arts pastor, right, okay. which is a slightly strange job, but my degree is, my master's is in theology of art, so always been intrigued in the link between the two. I came back to Belfast and I did not want to be there and I feel like the city won me over and I fought it every mm-hmm. bit. And writing about the place, that was what made me fall in love with it again. I think for my early work was about America and it was only when I turned the lens onto the people and the communities on my doorstep that I'd begun to see how frustrating and annoying and strange and wonderful and just that I probably am going to be writing about these people for the rest of my life. <laughs> and you just kind of accepted it and gave in to yeah, it. Yeah, um, and it, in the end it actually wasn't difficult. Mm. It's quite an easy community to love. They're very real um, I think people wear themselves on their sleeves in, in Northern Ireland. They're quite honest. Um, sometimes you don't always want to hear their honesty, but it was an antidote almost to coming back from America where people hold themselves quite closely. Yeah, or they're kind of fake in their honesty or what they're yeah. saying isn't really what they mean kind of thing. So it was it was great material to grapple with. Um yeah, it's you say as you say. There's lots of different people in it. Uh, one of them is Sammy, and he's this uh, former loyalist paramilitary who's very worried about his son. We can't do any spoilers or anything. No, no here, spoilers. But, but I, what I really loved about Sammy was this um, notion of someone who has done terrible things in his life, mm. and yet uh, in their older age is kind of looking back, um, maybe not quite with regret, but is grappling with the things that he's yeah. done and doesn't want to pass it on. That intergenerational thing where you know, the sins of the father or or it's, there's an inevitability that um, your 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 child is going to continue on in that vein and that it's your fault that yeah. you've caused it to happen. I think that's something we we often don't hear much about. Can we put people in boxes, bad person, person who yeah. did this? And what you paint there is a much more complex kind of idea. Absolutely. And I was really interested in this idea with Sammy that no one is something for just one reason. No one is just a paramilitary because they have allegiance to a cause. You are you get involved in things like that for all sorts of reasons, and it could be power. Sammy really loves the power that comes with violence. It could be allegiance to cause. It could also be identity, and for Sammy, that's a huge part of why he's involved. And mm. something shifts when he becomes a father because a bigger identity usurps his loyalty to what he was willing to do awful things for before. Mm. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, when you stereotype people and when you reduce them to just one thing, it's very dangerous. It's easy to write people off and it's really hun- hard to forge empathy and understanding. So I wanted Sammy to be this multifaceted, complex character who isn't always entirely sure of his own motivations, mm. but is you know, trying to trying to do the right thing in spite of himself. Mm. And you write very well also about the sort of disaffection of the unionist, commu- yeah. unionist community. And I mean, we, we sort of hear about this, the fact that, you know, the unemployment and kind of in East Belfast and the various industries sort of uh, closing down and things like that. And, and the Good Friday Agreement not having, you know, been good for, say, the unionist mm-hmm. community. And it's something that I suppose from, you know, the 
Republic of Ireland perspective looking up, you know, often maybe doesn't get much sympathy or or people find it hard to get their heads yeah. around. But I think reading your book, it, there's a real picture of that and where that comes from. And and I think at one point somebody says, you know, without the labels or without the, the symbols, who am I? You yeah. know, that it's all very well us sort of wondering why they're getting so obsessed with flags and all these mm. different rows that happen. But actually, if it's been your way and if it's what's yeah. identified you all the time, it's very hard to step out of it. Even yeah. if you don't know anything about the Troubles, like the younger people yeah. weren't brought up in it, but yet they still yeah, carry on. Yeah, they've inherited on. it. And I think there's been an erosion of identity across the board. So it wasn't just things like loyalism or nationalism, which which held people's identity. It was things like jobs as well and East Belfast sprung up around the shipyards mm. and we've now lost most of the shipbuilding and most of the skilled labour in that part of the city. And mm. a, a lot of particularly those young men, that was their identity. They went and they built things they were proud of and they came home at night knowing they'd had a hard day's work. And when that's gone or your choice is working in a call centre or something where you know there's not the same sense of ownership it can erode an mm. identity and similarly like the churches in the east used to be a massive thing and even I'm not sure if it's such a big thing in the south but things like uniformed organisations for young people like the girls brigade and the boys yeah. brigade and scouts there would have been a massive involvement for young people and that has lost its hold and its sense of identity so with all of those symbols and organisations eroded I can see why people are, are going well, you know, who I am, who am I? What what do I pledge affinity to? What makes me unique and different from other people? From travelling to America, um, did you get an insight into your how growing up in Northern Ireland and your culture has shaped you in a way that perhaps you weren't aware of when you were just in it all the time? Like how you were different or... Yeah, absolutely. In like a number of ways, I think it's so healthy to travel and I'm really thankful my parents, even before that, we travelled quite a lot as young people and we also got to meet people from other cultures and countries and communities and there's a huge part of Northern Ireland which is suffering because during the Troubles there wasn't that much traffic in and out. So mm. artistic influence didn't come in to shape our culture and those who left rarely came back. Mm. So it's wonderful to see things opening up and having more of that coming through. Um, and an enormous part of, of travelling to America in particular for me was the realisation that not a lot of folks over there understood that there were Protestants <laughs> in Ireland. And it's it's funny, but it's not you funny. You didn't get much press well. over there. Um, <laughs> I, I find myself explaining myself a lot. And mostly it's it's not derision that no, I'm meeting. No. It's just curiosity. Mm. Um, you know, and they'll still say things, but, but you do speak Irish. <laughs> and uh, you do do the Irish dancing, don't you? And I'll be like, no, no, not really in our community. So... <laughs> There's still a big kind of misunderstanding maybe about the diversity that there is within Northern Ireland. But growing up in the church and being very much in that kind of uh, quite intense, as you described it, experience, would you have been sort of also getting messages about Catholics and other community that, you know, to stay away and to not mix? And um, Or did you kind of manage to circumnavigate no, no, that? No, no, we wouldn't have been staying away. We would have been wanting to convert people. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it was mix as much as you can. Right. Um, but definitely a sense that there was another ring. So that, you know, we, we weren't the same 
as I am. Um, and I think that's been, you know, my first proper kind of encounter with Catholics was, you know, when I first hit university and it was much more of a mixed environment. Mm. But I will say that like, I'm very thankful for the fact that, you know, my family and my community, they didn't bring me up to hate or to be angry, but there wasn't that much understanding of the other side either. So I'm always really ashamed that my school, I went to a Protestant school that did not teach Irish history. So I could tell you all about the Cold War in Vietnam, but I can't tell you what happened 100 miles from my doorstep. So that has felt like a big loss to me to realise that there's a huge amount of work I have to do to learn about who I am. Um, and it's been embarrassing. <laughs> so I, I hope that's changed and that was maybe just something that happened in the 80s. Mm. Um, and that kids nowadays, my niece and nephew, go to an integrated primary, which I'm really thankful for. And mm. they are learning about everything. And they're so curious and they're coming home with these well-shaped ideas of, of what Northern Ireland is like. Well, that's brilliant to hear. Um, you talked about Belfast winning you over. There's a very vibrant um, artistic community in Belfast at the moment and you have your foot also in community work. That's yeah. kind of where your background is. Um, as everyone knows, when you're a writer, you can't, especially starting out, you know, you can't make a living from it necessarily. Um, this might be the book that gets you to be oh, able to make a living from well, it. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. It, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> but um, tell us about your community work, because you do work a lot with older people. Yeah, um, I have been um, supplementing my income, I'll say that. As a nice <laughs> That's a nice, nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, with community work for a long time. And I just want to make this really clear, like a lot of people, the community work is something they do in terms of the arts until their arts career takes off. I love my community work as much as I love my writing. One is not a stepping stone to the other. Um, I will be fighting the bit out to continue working with my <laughs> I community love that groups. Expression, sorry. Uh, fighting the bit out is probably not the best thing to say in <laughs> no, Northern Ireland. Probably, yeah, no, but um, it's okay down here. We, we yeah, but the two fade into each other. Like there is no frame between the work I do in the community and what I write about. I write about the people I work with and the people I work with read what I write and it's a big messy relationship between the two um, I over the last five years in particular I have really focused in on working with people who have dementia so I do a lot of dementia and arts engagement and older people arts engagement and I just I find it really freeing and really liberating because I'm getting these perspectives on the world that I might not come across otherwise um, I'm learning a lot about language. Um, there's a loss of inhibition that comes with dementia at the start where imagination is often really free. Mm. And for someone who loves imagination, that's been really inspiring. Um, there, Obviously, dementia is a desperately difficult illness, but I also find it really creative and it sparks a lot of ideas. So aphasia, which is the loss of language around dementia, has really made me reconsider how you write around lost mm. words. Mm. So, you know, if a noun has gone missing and you have to communicate around it, you come up with these really creative sentences. So that has challenged me to think about not just the meaning of what I write, but how a sentence flows, which I hope you'll see when you read the book that I've tried to make sure it's a book that reads really well as as well as means something. You mean something. Reading, reading out loud as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do a lot of reading out loud with my groups. And I'll tell you what, 
they are brutal. If they don't like something, <laughs> they tell you. You know, you get a lot of like, that doesn't make any sense, Jan. Why have you put that in there? <laughs> so they've always been my first writers and they're fantastic. And like you say, it's not going to stop even if this book does take off in a... I might fall down like in a, a puddle on the floor, but at the minute I'm working with the most fantastic bunch of ladies on the Falls and Shankle Road and they're keeping me on their toes. <laughs> but it's been really inspiring. Um, it, it's interesting to hear you talking about working with those women but for me as well the thing about Northern Ireland having lived there and just you know when you're living there from somewhere else it's a different kind of uh, mm. sense of a place you get it's, it's certainly not an in-depth one you kind of are an outsider and you're looking from the outside but uh where I love Belfast and one thing I think is incredible about it is um, for all that's happened there I, I every time I go up it's still a, a, almost a shock to me how, how nice is such a u- useless word but how mm. nice everybody is like whether it's in the shops or on the street or just anyone you encounter is lovely on the negative side the one thing I always felt about being up there and my sister used to work there in more a corporate environment how patriarchal it is as mm. well how even more patriarchal than sort of you know yeah. <laughs> we all know that the world is a bit of a, pa- is a patriarchy yeah. but up there I think there is a, there's a, that streak is stronger. Is that something you have observed or noticed or yeah, write about? I think it's something that we all grow up with in the north and in some ways you learn how to navigate around it and in some ways it can feel like a constraint. Um, I do think there are an enormous amount of strong women um, who have already spoken up and are rising up at the minute in the north. So if you look at the voices that have come out recently, you know, Lisa's work on Dairy Girls and Anna Burns' Milkman and Wendy Erskine, there's some fantastic strong women mm. writing and creating, you know, a voice for people in the north. Mm. Um, and I, I really wanted to write about that in the Firestarters as well. And you'll notice very quickly there is a theme of women being silenced in the book, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, mm. but it's a you know the two protagonists are male, but I hope that that doesn't come across as a, as misogyny. What it does is it, it it seeks to show that the women who are being silenced are actually the most balanced, interesting, nice characters in the book, and what you everything in you wants to stop the men trying to silence them. So I hope it's more a commentary on let's not do that Mm. than this is a guide to what you should do. Um, And speaking of commentary, being from Northern Ireland, it's your job to explain everything (laughs) about Northern Ireland to us. But it's now been without a government for, I think it's a record amount of uh, months and days. Or over two years now. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I have friends who are civil servant up there and it is the most frustrating thing to just not be able to get on and just do things. And it's really sad to me because... For, to me, like, I think it's a place full of, you know, really creative, amazing people and ru- ruled by this minority of people who seem to want everything to stay the same and seem quite happy with the status yeah. quo and quite happy with the two sides being at war with each other. I mean, you, you have some lovely lines in the book about, you know, politicians being very gifted at talking but saying nothing. And you, you really have some really excellent spot on observations. So what is your, your take on where Northern Ireland is now and what needs to happen and your frustrations <laughs> around that? It's a big how, how many hours do you have? Um, I, I think, I think there is just a general loss of any confidence in the political structure in Northern Ireland. Over and over again, you find yourself wanting to yell at the radio or the TV. Those people do not speak for me, um, and I, I think it's where, in some ways, the the arts needs to step up and is stepping up mm. because we can be an alternative voice to that. 
Um, there's what is the alliance campaign at the minute? A minute, it's um, you're what is it? You're allowed to demand better or something? And and it's like yeah, but you're not saying that we get better. <laughs> you know, we're just allowed to demand. Yeah, you're allowed to ask. Yeah. yeah. And I think what the arts does it is very firm on that. It puts the foot down and says, no, we will have better. And this is why we will have better. And I think we are actually doing a really good job of that mm. at the minute with incredibly limited funding. There's another whack off the Arts Council's budget this week, which I saw a couple of really good arts organisations go mm. under in the north. And that is the infrastructure that is actually continuing to hold the peace process mm. together. It's that structured community engagement through the arts that's allowing people to understand each mm. other and to move forward. And until they wise up and realise that and start supporting it properly, mm. it feels like it's always going to fall on the shoulders of artists and community workers and incredible people who will go above and beyond, but they shouldn't have yeah. to be going above and beyond and yeah. it costing so much their personal lives. Absolutely. And I mean, again, there's been great voices raised for the LGBT community there in terms yeah. of, you know, trying to get equal marriage and then abortion rights yeah. as well. I mean, it is looking up and just seeing what people are doing. There is a sense, I feel like there's a bit of a sense that people aren't willing to, to just take it anymore, no. that I think something has to give in that, yeah. that the old ways and that patriarchal thing yeah. is kind of really at it, on its last legs. I mean, that's a very optimistic view of it, but I, I really hope so because yeah, I, it deserves I, that. Yeah. It deserves to be able to move forward, you know. I hope so. And I think the voices that are coming in from outside and showing people this isn't normal here other people in other places have nice things yeah. and you should have nice yeah. things too that yeah. that's huge yeah. and i am i'm optimistic but i'm i think optimistic but tired mm, is what we weary. all are in the north yeah yeah, that's a bit of a, a down note yeah, to end sorry. on. So I'm going to read some lovely praise for your book <laughs> to lift it up a bit because some people, very great people have said some lovely things. So Donald uh, Ryan says it's grittily real, wildly magical, insanely alluring, which has to be good. Roddy Doyle, no less, has said Jan Carson seems to have invented a new Belfast in this gripping, surprising, exhilarating novel. I actually don't know if you've invented a new Belfast, but I think you're really reflecting a real Belfast mm. that is there that just that we don't know about or we haven't been told about mm. so that's my little quibble with Roddy but <laughs> otherwise very good and Lucy Caldwell another wonderful writer says it's shimmering with wit and Amy Bender says shot through this gripping tangle of events is a real insight Carson explores our complexities with her tremendously keen eye and I think that's an excellent point because for me having spent a bit of time in the north and being uh, romantically involved with someone like yourself, <laughs> Ulster Prod, uh, it just all rings really true. And it's sort of, um, again, going back to that wit and warmth and it brings the whole place alive mm. and not in the way, I mean, there is a lot of dreariness and there is a lot of fire and there's a lot of the troubles, yeah. I'll use an inverted commas, because you have a lovely line as well about the troubles saying it's not a it's not a big enough word really for no. what went on. Um, but I think it's, it's just so original and just so refreshing to read something about Northern Ireland that really jumps off the page like that. So mm. I think it's going to do really well. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks very much. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Jan Carson. She's fascinating. Um, really appreciate her coming in. And a reminder that that book, which you really should read, is called The Fire Starters. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. 
If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at IrishTimes.com. And if you like what we do, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 